Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us. Well, I thought we would start uh, the message this morning. I'm going to give you a little bit of a quiz. What I'm going to do is I'm going to show a sign up on the screen, and I want you to tell me what this sign is a warning about. You think that you can yell it out? I know we don't normally do that. It's stretching some of us, but why don't you yell out what these are warnings for, okay? You ready? Here's the first sign. Fire. Flammable. Highly flammable. Be careful, right? Here's the next one. No, not lightning. High voltage. Uh, You don't want to touch this. This is high voltage. How about this one? Radiation. That's right. How about this one? Poison. Toxic. And then, don't show yet. Some of you might not know that if you live in the Midwest. What does that mean? It's riptide. Be careful of the riptide. The water is going to pull you out into the ocean deeper because of the currents, the way the currents are going right now. Now look, the reason I wanted to share these warnings this morning is because as we continue our series called The Life of Christ, we come to a section in Luke's gospel where if you're following on your notes with me this morning, Jesus gives a strong warning about this life and the life to come. Jesus gives a strong warning about this life and the life to come. In other words, there is a relationship between how we live here and now and what that means for us in eternity. Now, here's what I want us to understand. All of those signs I just showed, those are for our good, right? There's not somebody going, oh, I want to see how I can ruin this person's life, so I'm going to put a sign about poison. No, it's for our good. And in the same way, the warnings Jesus gives us in Scripture come from a heart of love. Now, before we actually read the passage, I want to remind you of something we say often here anytime we read Scripture, whether on your own or here as a church family. One of the most important questions you need to ask every time you open up the Scriptures is, what is the context of this passage? In other words, what surrounds this story that I'm about to read? Because oftentimes, that's going to give us some clues about what it's actually about. And that's a particularly important question for us this morning, because the passage that we're going to look at has oftentimes been taken a little bit out of context and used to teach things that I don't think was Jesus' main point. Now, it doesn't mean those things aren't true, and we're going to talk about some of those things, but this story really has a main point. So I'm going to remind us of the context. If you've been here or if this is your first time, we are in a section in Luke's gospel and Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. He's making his way to Jerusalem and he knows what waits him there, right? He knows that a cross is waiting him. And he's traveling, he's constantly been challenged by this group of people, if you've been with us in this series, called the Pharisees, right? These Pharisees are constantly challenging Jesus. We saw this two weeks ago, if you were here, when Jesus tells those three parables about being lost and found. We studied particularly the parable of the prodigal son. Now, why did Jesus tell those parables? Well, he told them because the Pharisees and teachers of the law were questioning the kind of riffraff Jesus hung out with. And so Jesus tells these three stories like these are the kind of people that God are interested in because they know their need for grace. Then, last week, if you were here, Jesus tells the parable of the dishonest money manager. And Pastor Jeff did a great job showing us that Jesus tells a story of this guy who was shrewd. He knew how to handle his earthly wealth. And it was a parable to show us that the way we use our money here on earth really has an impact on our relationship with God both now and forever. 
In fact, as a reminder of that, I just, if you weren't here last week, look at how Jesus ends this parable, because this is insignificant for the parable we're going to look at this morning. Look at these words in Luke 16, verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, why am I bringing all this up? Well, because of the verses that immediately follow verse 13 there in Luke 16. I have them on the screen again. It says, the Pharisees, this is right after that verse, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. It is out of that context where Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who are sneering at him because of their love for money that Jesus now goes on to tell a little bit about the law and the prophets and then gives this parable that we're going to be looking at today called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. If the preceding parable, the one Pastor Jeff talked about last week, was about the proper use of money, This parable is about the abuse of money and its eternal consequences. It's a solemn warning specifically to the Pharisees, but it has applications for us still today. And again, pause. The reason I'm spending so much time on this is because as we're going to see in just a second, this parable has all kinds of questions that come with it. Jesus is going to talk about things like heaven and hell, and it's going to raise questions about God's sovereignty and the free choice. Listen, it's very dangerous to take a parable and base our theology off of that, right? My understanding of the parables, and I could be wrong on this, but typically I think Jesus has one point that he's trying to get across when he tells us a parable. And while those other things are important and they lead to great questions, I don't want us to lose sight of the main point of this parable together. I'm going to talk about things like heaven and hell certainly this morning because that's part of the warning. But the main point is you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. That is true both now and forevermore. So if you would, I encourage you, if you haven't already, to take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 19, or 16, starting in verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, we always carry some in some of the seats around you there, and you can find this on page 730. Now, what I'd like to do, because this is a parable, it's a story, I'm going to read the whole thing in one reading, and I welcome you either to read that along with me in your Bible, or, like Jesus' first audience is here, they would have simply listened to this story. If you just want to listen to this parable, feel free to do that as well. But let's read this text. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us." 
He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray. Oh Lord, just like those warning signs are intended for our good, we trust that this parable is intended for our good. And so we want to have open hearts, open minds, open ears to not just hear your word, but to hear it and respond to it. And however that may be, I don't know for each person, uh, but we welcome you here. We pray that your spirit would be among us, that your word would cut us to the heart for our sake, for your sake. Amen. Well, in the beginning of this parable, you notice right away we're introduced to two characters, and they are a study in sharp contrast, right? I mean, it doesn't get any bigger contrast here. You can see the contrast in verses 19 through 21. One is rich, one is poor. One is covered with luxurious garments. In fact, the original language suggests here these are garments that were reserved for a king. The other one is covered with sores. One is feasting every day. If you're using the NIV, it says he lived in luxury. Literally, that means he held a feast every day. Now understand the diet of the average person in this day was probably some soup, a little bread, and maybe some fruit if they were lucky. Feasting was reserved for special occasions like weddings, but this man has a feast every single day while the other man is starving outside of his gate, longing for even the crumbs from these feasts. And then lastly, we're told this rich man, he had a funeral, and if you study the context of this time, you know it would have been an extravagant affair. Everybody who's anybody would have been there. But it doesn't say that about the other guy. It probably means he just died on the street and was thrown into a common grave with strangers. And so the contrast here couldn't be greater, except we haven't talked about the most striking contrast of all. What is the most striking contrast in these first verses? Do you notice it? One of these guys has a name, and the other one doesn't. Now, you might say, well, that's an accident, or maybe that's inconsequential. No way. No way, and I'll tell you why, because in every other parable Jesus ever gives, and maybe you're thinking back, some of the ones you might be familiar with, he never gives a proper name. It's always something like, a sower went to his field. Or two weeks ago, a son asked his father for his share of the inheritance. Or a woman looks for the lost coin. Or a man or a Samaritan. There's never a proper name ever except for here. Now, I want to suggest to you that might be pretty significant. In fact, I believe after studying it this week that this is the most significant thing about this parable. Lazarus is his name. And it is a name that means God is my help. God is my help. Whatever you do, don't miss this. The rich man needs no help. He is self-sufficient. He has built his life around his wealth. It's what defines him. It's his identity. That's why he's simply called the rich man. That's who he is. Now, what's the context of this again? Remind me. You cannot serve both God and money. Lazarus, as his name applies, serves who? God. 
God is his help. The rich man, well, he served money. And what is the result? Well, as with most of Jesus' parables, there's a twist. In this one, there's a sharp reversal. You see both men die, but in death, the situation of each is turned upside down. Lazarus is taken to Abraham's side while the rich man is taken to Hades. Now, is the point of this parable that, to show us that rich people are doomed and poor people aren't? No, that's not the point. As with all of Jesus' parables, like I said earlier, I think there's usually one main point. And in my opinion, here's the main point of this parable, if you're following on your notes. How we live on earth will determine our eternity. This is a parable to show us how we live on earth is going to determine our experience of eternity. Now, from that main idea, I'm going to argue there's several implications we can take away from this. Some of these may seem obvious, uh, but in our current culture, I'm not so sure anymore. So let me just talk about three implications from that main idea, always remembering the main idea. The first implication is simply this. Life is temporary. This life is temporary. The life to come is eternal. This life that we're living right now is temporary, but the life to come is eternal. This is... Not common knowledge anymore today, right? A lot of people believe that once this life is over, that's it. And so we might as well eat, drink, and be merry because that's all there is going on after this. And yet, this Bible is in complete opposition to that here and in many other places throughout Scripture. The Scriptures are very clear that there is an entire eternity waiting for us. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. These are some encouraging verses. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outwardly we are wasting away. How many of you know about that right now? Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And then he follows that with these words. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, referring to our body, and it's certainly going to be, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. The phrase Abraham's side there, or more literally, maybe some of your translations say Abraham's bosom, that would would have been a common phrase to the Jewish person listening. Scholars have debated for centuries whether this is referring to an actual place or maybe this is just another metaphor uh, for heaven. Friends, that's just for another day. I'd love to teach a class on that sometime. Regardless, they would have all recognized what Jesus is describing here is a blessed state after death, eternal life with God. In a similar way, Hades meant the place of the dead. And again, there's debate as whether this is the same thing as hell or we're talking about different things here. And that would be a fascinating discussion to have. But I'm going to point us back to the main point of this parable. A great reversal has taken place for these two men in the afterlife. What is most important, though, is this idea that there is a chasm that now exists between these two men. A chasm that Abraham says is unbridgeable. And that is why The main idea of this text is so important. It is why Jesus is offering us this warning in love. How we live our lives here, right now on earth, will determine our eternity. There is no second chance after death. Death is final. This life is temporary. So what we do with it 
Oh, it's hugely significant. The second important implication under this main idea is that eternity, if you're following eternity, and I put eternity with God, is open to anyone who recognizes their need. Eternity with God is open to anyone who recognizes their need. Don't miss the main point. A beggar, once sick and hungry with no earthly possessions, now becomes rich in eternity. Lazarus, as his name implies, has indeed been helped. He has been helped by God. The rich man, once healthy and wealthy and enjoying nothing but the finest life has to offer, now suffers torment in death. Now, we have to understand just how surprising of a reversal this would have been to Jesus' listeners. Many in Jesus' today believe that riches were a stamp of God's approval for a righteous life. That's what the Pharisees most likely believe here, right? So the idea here is if Lazarus is at the bottom of the pile, well, it's because he deserved it. It's because he probably has some sort of sin that's getting in the way from experiencing the kind of material blessing God wants him to. And the rich man on the other side, he must be living a, a very righteous life, and God has blessed him with material blessings as a result. Now, let me ask you a serious question. Is that still taught today? Oh, sadly, it is still taught today. It is referred to sometimes as the prosperity gospel, which is not the gospel. It goes something like this. If I live a certain way, then God owes me material blessings as a result. Now, I don't want you to hear anything wrong about material things, friends. I truly believe in my heart that God gives us good gifts, and he enjoys it when we enjoy those good things. But there is no promise. There is no promise that if I live a certain way, then God is obligated to now bless me with material blessings. In fact, Jesus promises disciples quite the opposite quite often, doesn't he? You want to follow me? Well, you're going to take up your cross. And it's going to mean suffering and trials and persecution. And then he says things like, consider that pure joy. Because then you know you're walking in my footsteps. Jesus completely turns the prosperity gospel upside down here and in other places. I can't help but think of the Beatitudes when I read this, right? In Matthew 5, while the world says things like, Blessed are the rich in this world, for they will experience the best life has to offer. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're following on your notes, Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. What that means, what that means is that true riches cannot be found here and now. But they can be waiting for us for all eternity. True riches, riches that no moth or rust can destroy. Now, again, don't misunderstand this parable. It is not because Lazarus is poor that he's taken to heaven. Nor is it because the rich man is rich that he will spend eternity in hell. So why does he go to hell? I'll remind you again. The name Lazarus means what? I hope this drills in your head by the end of this. God is my help. God is my salvation. The only proper name Jesus ever uses in a parable this is intentional because it's revealing to us, the listener, who Lazarus trusted in. Because Lazarus trusted in God to be his help, he is with God for all eternity. The rich man, on the other hand, has nothing but the designation rich man. Here's why. He's not sent to hell for being rich. What sends him to hell is that he served himself instead of God. You cannot serve 
both God and money, Jesus just said. Jesus then immediately gives this parable where he names a guy, Lazarus, as an example of somebody who did serve God, who understood that God was his help. And then there's this rich man who didn't understand that, who found his identity, who found his life in his wealth. He had no need for God. He had no need for forgiveness. He had no need for help. Even later in this story, I hope you notice that nothing has changed for this rich man. Did you catch some of this? Even in Hades, he says to Abraham, I've got this underlined in my Bible. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. What kind of job is that for? Who, what kind of a person is that a job for? A slave. A servant. This rich man is used to being on top. Lazarus is at the bottom, but here's a reversal, but the rich man still is treating him like a servant. The rich man is still doing what, friends? This is so important for our understanding of eternity. He is clinging to his identity as a rich man. That is who he was here on earth, and that is who he still is in eternity. He was so used to the power in his old life and the clout that money could give him that he's acting as if things haven't changed even in hell. Even in hell, he does not repent. He thinks he can order Abraham around, telling him, hey, send Lazarus to come and be my lackey. By the way, that little detail there reveals another thing about the rich man. He knew who Lazarus was. He knew his name. He knew this guy who was outside of his gate every single day. He wasn't unaware of him, but he never spared a single thought for Lazarus' suffering while here on earth. But now that he's suffering, oh well, send Lazarus to dip his finger so that I can be quenched. He is self-centered, even in death. Maybe you wonder if something's changed when he requests that Lazarus be sent to his brothers. Has his heart softened there? I'm fairly, fairly convinced after studying this this week that even there, his attitude hasn't changed. I agree with Tim Keller who says, it seems pretty obvious that what he's doing there is saying, I didn't get the proper warning. That's why I'm here. I didn't get the proper information. The implication being, I'm really not that guilty. This really isn't my fault. There's some blame shifting going on here, right? This isn't odd at all, though. Not if you understand hell. Not if you understand what hell is all about. Hell is just our freely chosen false identity going on forever and ever. Hell is nothing more than what we ask for. Notice what the rich man does not ask for. What doesn't he ask for? This is remarkable to me. He asks that Lazarus be sent to him, not that he could be let out. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He doesn't ask for the Lord's help even now. Why? Because who we are in this life is who we are in the life to come. Don't think that we become little floating spirits up on clouds that play harps. Don't believe that lie. This life is preparing us for the life to come. You know the saying, we say this to our kids all the time, right? Practice makes perfect. Why do we say that? Well, the better I get at some sort of drill or some sort, sort of musical instrument, when the time comes for me to actually perform, it'll just be natural. It's hard to convince kids of that, though, isn't it? And sometimes it's hard for us to be convinced that this life bears responsibility for the life to come, that I'm preparing for my entire eternity. 
Now, I know many people struggle with the doctrine of hell. I know I do. But there's nobody who's helped me more than this than C.S. Lewis. Look at what Lewis says. And again, the language might be a little old, but I think you can understand. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start? Smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. C.S. Lewis is seeing simply what the Bible says in Romans 1. It says, ultimately, God will give all people what they want most. You want to build your life around riches? You want to be your own person apart from me? You want to live your life apart from God? Then God, who did not create us to be robots, he created us with choice and will, says, okay. Let's please get rid of this idea that hell is like this hole where people are trying to crawl out of it and God's up here going, no, that's not it at all. Hell is the greatest monument to human freedom there is. And it's the reason why Lewis goes on to say this. Look on the screen. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. This parable is very clear. This rich man does not ask to leave. He wants his will still, not God's will. And that is what God gives him. Friends, the kingdom of God is open to anyone and everyone. Anyone and everyone who is willing to acknowledge that they need God's help. You cannot serve both God and money. Or you cannot serve both God and blank yourself. That's why Jesus would say these strong words in Mark 8, 36. They're still applicable today. Can you read them out loud with me? What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? You got 70, 80, 90, 100 years maybe. What good is it to gain everything you can gain, to base your identity on that when you've got an entire eternity waiting for you? If you're falling on your notes, the rich man was self-sufficient. Lazarus depended on God. And from this, we see the third implication of this parable, which is the word of God has all we need to receive eternal life. Here's the good news. The word of God has all we need to receive eternal life. Jesus hasn't left us in the dark about this, right? There are warning signs, just like the signs I showed on the screen earlier, all throughout scripture, including here. This is essentially what Abraham says to the rich man here, right? Hey, you've got Moses and the prophets. A surface reading of that might indicate that the rich man missed his salvation because he wasn't generous enough with his money. That's not it at all. It's because he refused to listen to God's word. He rejected God and his word. He didn't believe the scriptures which Jesus summed up in this sentence, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This rich man did neither. He loved himself. And he loved his wealth. Abraham's response to this rich man is that he and his brothers had all the warning they needed about this. In fact, they are the very same warnings that Lazarus had. And Lazarus heard them, and he responded to them. Now Lazarus is in heaven because he understands that all of the law and the prophets pointed to his need for a savior, for his need for help. 
The words of scripture never penetrated this rich man's heart. His actions revealed his true belief. The rich man goes on and proclaims, well, that wasn't enough. But surely, if somebody rose from the dead, then they would repent. Hmm. What could that possibly be referring to? Well, maybe it's referring to another Lazarus in John 11 who Jesus rose from the dead and the Pharisees wanted to kill him because of it. Or more likely, maybe it's referring to Jesus himself. We know from the Gospels and from history that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to 500 people. Some of those people wrote about it in a book we have right now before us. And we also know that even someone rising from the dead can't convince some people of their need for God's help outside of themselves. Friends, we have all the warning we need. The signs are everywhere. Thanks be to God. The only question is if I'm willing to listen to them and respond. So as we close, let me just remind us again of the main point of this parable, right? How we live our life on earth will determine our eternity. So the obvious question that remains for us is how then shall we live? How shall we live on earth here? For me, it's very clear there's two things that need to happen. We must recognize our need, and we must recognize the needs of others. The person that is welcomed into the kingdom of heaven is the person who knows their need for God's help, just like Lazarus did. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? It means blessed are those eternally who understand that whether you are rich in this life or you are poor in this life, it does not matter. Apart from God's help, apart from God's intervention, our fate is the same as the rich man's. But thanks be to God that in Christ Jesus we have been given all of the help we need. All of the help we need. You see, on the cross, the cross that Jesus knew he was approaching as he told this parable, Jesus stood in that chasm between heaven and hell. And he created a bridge with his hands wide open for all people. And in this life, the promise of Scripture is if you trust in what Jesus has done, that he took your place, we sang about that earlier this morning, that he took your cross, then your destination is with him for all of eternity understand what Christ did on the cross and by rising again. He opened the way to eternal life with God. If there would ever be a time for an amen, that might be a good one. Now why would he do that? Why would God do that? Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Shall not perish but have eternal life. If you make anything but Jesus your help in this life, if your identity, your desire is anything but Jesus, then Jesus comes to you right now lovingly and he warns you before it's too late. Listen, you can't serve both God and whatever. Have you realized like Lazarus, you are, I don't care how much money you have, you are a beggar. I am a beggar in need of God's grace? Or if you're on your notes here, have I recognized my need for the Lord's help? I'm so glad we get to take communion together here in a minute because every time we take communion, dear Christian, that's exactly what you're doing. You're reminding yourself 
that apart from God's help on my behalf, apart from his broken body and for his blood that was spilled on that cross, that gap, that chasm would never have been bridged. But because it has, we remember and we celebrate. The second application of this text is what will naturally happen when we understand and respond to that first one. We're going to share God's heart for those who need help in this world. Physical help, spiritual help, right? As with the rich man, our use of our wealth in relation to the needs of our neighbors, that reveals something about our heart. If we claim to be Christians, notice this rich man claimed to be a son of Abraham. But our material wealth is simply amassed for our own use, for our own pleasure. If we're not generous and compassionate in our use of wealth, if we hoard our money, if we close ourselves off behind our gates to the needs of those right outside, then we do not truly believe God's word. How could this rich man who knew the scriptures, considered himself a son of Abraham, be so heartless? It's because he didn't take the scriptures seriously. And the scriptures are clear, Old Testament, New Testament, for the person who has understand, understood that they have been helped by God, they turn that around and help others who need it. I'll just give you a few examples here because we're running close to time. Hosea 6.6, 6, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. How about Micah 6.8, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This isn't just an Old Testament thing either. We know John writes in his first letter these, these words, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? You're, you're gonna care about other people. Or how about this from Jesus' brother, James? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, and I can just see the rich man saying that to Lazarus on his way out the gate. Go in peace. But does nothing about their physical needs? What good is it? Friends, when we have been helped by the Lord, we will share his heart for others who need help. It's as simple as that. That's why I'm excited about this seminar we have about the refugees. How can we get on the solution side of that wherever we stand? How can we be a help? But I'll just pause here and just remind you, this isn't a parable about solving world hunger or the refugee crisis. This is about asking the question, who is the Lazarus right outside of my gate? Who is my neighbor that needs my help? When I recognize the way God has helped me, I will share his heart in helping others. So I'll ask as we close and prepare for communion, do I share God's heart for helping others? Do I share God's heart for helping others? It's a strong warning, but it comes from a place of strong love. So as we prepare right now to take communion, which is an amazing reminder of that love, let me just pause and pray and give you an opportunity um, simply to hear from the Lord, what, what do I need to respond to today, God? So let's bow our heads. Oh Lord, it's never fun to talk about these things. I'll just be honest about that. And yet we trust that these warnings are in your word because you love us. And so we wanna heed this warning that the way we live our life right now will determine our life forevermore. And so I don't know what my friends in this room need to hear from this, but you do.
So we trust right now in this silence as we learn to be still and know that you are God, uh, that you might reveal that to us, that we would have open hearts to that. So we just give you just 30 seconds to allow this to sink in. Amen.